0: Welcome to the Theology Podcast. We're glad to have you here for this episode. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've even written stuff. And I'm an editor uh, at uh, the, uh, at Touchstone Magazine. What, what, what? Why did I just forget that? Anyway, <laughs> it's that time of day. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It is early afternoon. <laughs> anyway, Tom, how about you?
1: I'm Tom Price. I teach theology, ethics, philosophy in one of the places, Gordon Conwell
0: Theological Seminary. All right, great. So, Glenn, it's your show today. So, introduce yourself and then take us right into the, to the topic.
2: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University. That means I'm retired. Uh, I have, uh, let's see, I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associated at Reflections Ministries, and I work with my own ministry every square inch. Um, Recently on Facebook, I, I posted a thing that I felt was a little bit exaggerated, but I thought made an, a good point um, about um, basically about anti-Semitism and the problem with anti-Semitism. Basically, it said, look, if, if you hate Jews, the reason you hate Jews is you hate the God, you hate their God is what it came down to. And I was a little bit surprised. I mean, I expected there to be some pushback. But I was a little bit surprised at the virulence of the anti-Semitism that came out from many people in the evangelical and the Reformed communities. And so I thought it would be worthwhile to spend some time talking about anti-Semitism right now. And uh, just so you understand my parameters here, if you want to criticize Israel, I'm okay with that. You want to criticize APAC? Fine. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League? That's okay. Start making generalizations about the Jews, and that perks my ears up. Blame them for LGBTQ stuff. Blame them for pornography. Uh, blame them for the immigration on the southern border as an effort to dilute the white race. I got that once. Um, <laughs> Talk about them as being the ones who are operating the government behind the scenes or who are controlling the whole financial institutions, the world. Do any of those things and we're done. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's, that's the framework I'm operating under. Um, Anti-Semitism seems to be about the only form of stereotypical hate That is culturally acceptable right now. It's acceptable, it seems, on both the far right and the left. And the irony for the right is that what you're doing is you're adopting ideas that fundamentally uh, anchor critical theory, that a person's identity is determined by their group. Mm -hmm. And this is, it seems to me, a real problem. And we can, we'll get into some of the biblical stuff on this as well, but right now I just kind of want to toss it to you guys, get your first reactions here. Yeah, I've always been
0: uh, kind of weirded out by anti-Semitism. It's, not, it's never been uh, a major uh, sort of irritation in, in, in the sense that I felt like I needed to to go after uh, people who say anti-Semitic things. The thing that arises in my mind, though, whenever I hear stuff like this, is: uh, Have you had any friendships with Jews? Uh, did you know any? Do you know any? Uh, have you had any positive interactions with them? So, for me, the answer is yes, and all to all those. Um, my literary agent is Jewish. Uh, I grew up with Jews. Uh, basically, I was in my childhood uh, when I was in St. Louis, and my father was at uh, Washington U. I lived in neighborhoods that were predominantly. Uh, you know, jewish and so Consequently, when you're a little kid, <laughs> you're in each other's homes all the time. One of my best friends was a kid named Steve Rosen. I have this fun story I tell about when he took me to synagogue, uh, and he said, uh, "Christopher Wiley, that name's not going to work for us. Uh, we got to give you a new name. We'll call you Christopher Cohen." <laughs> and it was Like you know, we're like we're, you know, we're like nine years old. We don't understand that this it doesn't follow. This is a non sequitur. Christopher, obviously Christ bearer Cohen. But <laughs> the, the rabbi uh, was uh, was. Uh, startled when I was introduced, and so was the Sabbath school teacher. But anyway, and we and we spent our time uh, sliding uh, down the center of the synagogue aisle on our socks and getting and getting nabbed by the rabbi. But anyway, <laughs> that's just one episode as, as a kid. Uh, one of my uh, good friends, who was an activist defending family. Families uh, is a guy named Brian Kamiker, who is the founder of Mass Resistance in Massachusetts, and I worked with him uh, on the Parents' Rights Initiative that went all the way to Beacon Hill. And I was there when he testified. I was there supporting him. I I was involved with helping him connect with Christian leaders all over the city. Then and and so this is just a sample of my my history with Jews. Uh, Now I've had some bad experiences with Jews. I mean, but it's like, like every group you've got, <laughs> you know, uh, a mix, you know, but, uh, in terms of, you know, these are just people and that's the way I've always thought it. These are just people. And, um, anyway, that's, uh, you know, people, you know, it's just kind of where I'm coming from.
1: Yeah. I, similarly, I had rich experiences in university, graduate school <laughs> and the like studying alongside and with and under uh, manifold, brilliant. Academics, um, but also very close friends that I even dated for three years as a young man—a Jewish gal from a Russian Jewish gal—and some of the firsthand stories of of even you know the, the extreme types of anti Semitism that went on in Russia, especially under even communism, and then of course Orthodox Christianity didn't like them around either just the the bullying and and the brutality it's it's it was very disturbing so yeah befriending people that are just trying to live their lives and have had to confront that kind of hatred and hostility um, for someone who is is shaped by the, the full christian vision it doesn't settle right um, especially even when you have something so strong as love your enemies doesn't mean a little bit of hatred for them Right, even even the people whose ideas themselves should be such that you can't go along with them, it doesn't turn to the flip side of hating, hating on that level. I, I never, I, you know, I've, it's been tangible, but I've never understood why it is so prominent.
2: Yeah, I've said before on this program, and I got a lot of pushback on this one too. That I suspect that fundamentally, anti-Semitism is satanic, um, in the sense that, you know, Satan, you know, Christ came from the Jews, so Satan has it in from the Jewish people because his defeat came at their hands, or the hands of Christ who was one of them. So um, I can't prove that, but I have a strong suspicion that that's the case. It's interesting, Glenn, uh, real quick is,
1: sorry, uh, Karl Barth was once to ask what was the strongest argument for God's existence, and his line was the continued existence of the Jewish people. I don't think he was original in saying that, but it was definitely one of those lines. Every attempt to eradicate and exterminate and still able to, to hold that identity together in that way.
2: Yeah, historically, the you know, as a historian, I will tell you the, the, the continued existence of the Jews, and I've said this in class, um, it's inexplicable. Any people that's gone through a tenth of what the Jews have gone through has disappeared in history. They've just assimilated into the surrounding populations, and it was over. Uh, I cannot, you know, as a historian, apart from the action of God, I cannot explain the continued existence of the Jewish people. And for that matter, I can't really explain, and this is going to get a lot of people upset, I can't really explain why we have a state of Israel right now. Um you know, a, a lot of people in the reformed world will absolutely insist that the existence of Israel has nothing to do with biblical prophecy. I can't explain it historically. I don't know whether it has anything to do with biblical prophecy, but I can't rule that out. You know, I'm 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 not that smart to know for sure what all these things point to. Well, if,
0: at at the very least, we should say, uh, God, in God's providence, there is a state of Israel. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, very it's, it's kind of like a very low bar, but I mean, in a certain sense. But in another sense, I mean, here it is. It's, the, it's, a, it's simply a fact. There it is. It's there.
2: Yeah. So, I, I think one of the one of the ways you know, and I've been trying to explain to people on Facebook my thinking on this. You know, the love your enemies, Tom, is one I didn't bring up, but that's one I probably should have. I don't want to encourage people to think of the Jews as their enemies, though. Exactly. Yeah, that's. But if, that's, if, yeah, if that's we weird. are to love our enemies, then you know, who aren't we supposed to be loving? Yeah, um, that, you know the point
0: that uh, that this uh, really does seem to apply is kind of weird uh, in my again in my own experience. Now, maybe maybe there are things that people would like to point to that I'm that I'm not aware of. But uh, in in terms of my own uh, sort of take on things, um, I just don't ever, i never thought of Jews as my enemy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But there, there has been
1: a there has been a history, especially in Christianity, where you know, I mean, some of Luther's later writings, right, where you have some very strong anti-Judaism. But that comes very much in terms of you know very strong. Theological identities and and you know Luther's frustration with certain things, um, but that that becomes an excuse later in Germany for reviving and seeing Luther as basically part of this allowable moral outrage towards the Jew in Germany. Um, when when what Luther was doing was was dealing with not against a creature made in in the image of God, though fallen, because that would be all of us apart from grace, right? Jew and Gentile alike. He was dealing more with his frustrations with people not converting from being stubborn in relationship to the gospel. And so that can be anyone also, right?
2: Yeah, and and a distinction Eric Metaxas makes uh, in his book on Luther that I think is really important is that... Luther, we could describe, as you said, it's anti-Judaism, it's not anti-Semitism, because he v- viewed Judaism as a religion, not as a race. Yeah. In other words, it was not an immutable characteristic of a person. Yeah. Um, and that's the distinction between what Luther was doing and what Hitler was doing. Another one that I would add that I don't remember if Eric mentioned is that if you look at Luther's other writings, he's just as vitriolic against other people he disagrees with. Exactly. You know, he's not singling out the Jews more than other people he doesn't like. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so let's just be clear. He there. handles <laughs> everybody <laughs> roughly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, if if you haven't looked it up, do a Google search for the Lutheran insulter. Um <laughs> somebody is going, is reading through Luther's complete writings and he's putting every insult in a day, into a database. And if you (laughs) go there, it, if you look it up, you'll be able to have Luther insult you. Um, and it'll just pull up a random insult and you can hit insult me again and again and again and again. So you can, you can kind of get the range of Luther's, um, humor and, and vitriol. But, um, yeah, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Judaism, but I thought that would be worth throwing in. Um, as a Reformation historian, that was probably my favorite Reformation website. <laughs> he, he would have um, said all the same about New Englanders who didn't come to the faith as well, <laughs> right? Yeah, no. Yeah. So um, th- where I usually go though is First John, and if you if you read First John. What's, what, one of the things that's striking about what he says is he doesn't allow a middle ground between love and hate. You are either working for your neighbor's benefit or you are not. And if you are not working for your neighbor's benefit, you hate them. This is the way, this is the way John uses the language. And he points out that anyone who does not love his neighbor whom he can see cannot love God whom he cannot see. Which means if we hate our neighbor, we hate God. And thus, the statement about, you know, if you hate the Jews, you hate, you hate the God that called them, that's, that's true. Um, I would add that it would also be true if you hate blacks, if you hate Muslims, if you hate any group out there, mm-hmm. you are hating the God in whose image they're made. I think that that is, uh, you know, that's sort of a bottom line here. You know, yeah. it's why we're told to love our enemies, because we cannot afford to dehumanize them. Because if we dehumanize them, we are insulting the God in whose image they're made. Yeah, I think,
0: I think that's a fair statement. And uh, I guess, um, you know, I'd like to just reflect a little more on how this uh, particular group gets singled out you mentioned the theological rationale, but then there's a great deal of speculation, uh, or I guess, uh, uh, accusation about various things. So, uh, one of the things that sometimes people will, uh, you know, direct uh, your attention toward is uh, Jews in particular, um, fields of work or, uh, their literary, um, accomplishments uh or they're scientific or ideological so you know take somebody like karl marx karl marx is ethnically jewish uh his father if i remember correctly converted to lutheranism but it was very much a uh, <laughs> for
1: economic a, reasons <laughs> yeah 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 but
0: at the same time uh we can see in say this as you noted earlier glenn uh when uh, the bolshevik Re- revolution uh you know, is sort of unfolding, uh, the Jews are, are, are targeted within the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, you've got a kind of purge that occurs within communism uh, to get the Jews out uh, mm-hmm. there. And that's well documented. So there's just some odd stuff. And I, I frankly, I just haven't been able to uh, uh, sort of uh, get an understanding or like sort of understand sort of what I think is almost like a fever dream uh, and how it's it sort of sweeps people up and carries them along i just don't you know it, it, and i'm being completely sincere i'm not trying to um you know uh virtue signal or anything i'm just like what's going on um yeah you know and, and well, I, your your statements about spiritual influences i'm open, i'm open to that but i mean but there's there's yeah. there's got to be some rationale that people use and then you can examine it
2: yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, one thing I will note is that I've had people. I had somebody want post. So, name one thing that the positive that the Jews have done for the world. Somebody else, to their credit, to their credit, somebody else posted a link to Jewish Nobel Prize winners. (laughs) Um, They they are seriously overrepresented. Okay, so so let's talk some history here. In medieval Europe, the Jews were prohibited— From in in a lot of countries in Western Europe, they were prohibited from owning land, so they couldn't get involved in farming. They were prohibited from being in the craft guild, so they couldn't do that. There were all kinds of things that they were not allowed to do, and that forced them into two areas. One of them was commerce, they were heavily involved in trade. As a matter of fact, in the early Middle Ages, there were some documents, uh, they're known as the Geniza documents found in Cairo, uh, that you're able to reconstruct an entire trading network of Jewish traders going all the way across Central Asia. Hmm. So they're heavily involved in trade. The other thing, though, that they're heavily involved in, partly as an outgrowth from the profits they made from trade, was money lending. And the reason why they were the money lenders in medieval Europe is that for most of the Middle Ages, the church prohibited lending money at interest. So it was really difficult for you to get a loan. So you so could go to is, the Jews and get a loan from them because they didn't have the same prohibition at for lending at interest. So this is something, of course,
0: that I think a lot of folks who are familiar with history know. But how common is that knowledge? You know, you can even think about Jewish names: Silverstein, Goldsmith. I mean, there's there's an obvious connection to precious metals. And mm-hmm. now the thing about precious metals is portability. I mean, if you're if you're going to be on the run. You know, one of the things about land is you can be divested of it pretty quick, pretty quickly and simply, you know, can just be chased off it and, and you leave it behind. But you can take this portable stuff, gems, uh, gold, that kind of thing. So it makes just all the sense in the world that this is where you would invest yourself. Uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, who knows where you're gonna ha- when you're going to have to d- pull up stakes and run. Um, and then when you think about literary uh, accomplishments – I mean, the entire religion is built around reading and commentary. (laughs) And And studying. So these are people from an early age who are learning to write. And And, write well. And valuing the high arts.
1: I mean. Yeah. Classical yeah. music, music and its development and performance at the highest levels, art, both investment and contribution to some of that. That's what they, they yeah. get ransacked and a lot of their art taken away by those who, you know, envious
0: of it mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and saw yeah. the value of it. Now, one of the things, having done business with Jews, my, in my own personal experiences, they are very savvy the ones that I've experienced with you know had experience with so you know if you're going to go into a business dealing with a jew generally i mean i've been a realtor and i've represented jews so um, if you're going to deal with them they they're no nonsense <laughs> you know they they they're in this to win you know in terms of a business transaction
2: <laughs> you know the same thing can be said for the amish yeah, that's <laughs> right. You, know, you, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it's not exclusive to them, you know. But, 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 I, but
0: I I do you know. think, though, with Jews, uh, there's a long history and a kind of culture in which this kind of uh, ability is very uh, sort of consciously, deliberately developed. In other words, it's not just, um, you know, every once in a while you get like, it's, it's not, in other words, it's just it's not just like an ethnic, like a, like a, a biological trait or genetic trait. Right.
2: This this yeah. is something that has got a history, and it makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I, I my comparison to the Amish wasn't a joke. I was told once that if you ever shake hands on a uh, hands on a deal with an arm, Amish farmer, count your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, it's you know, <laughs> you know. But okay. But but, but let, let's go back to the money lending for a moment. Um. I've had people tell me, well, there must have been a reason why the Jews were persecuted in Europe. It had to be because of their bad behavior. (laughs) Oh, really? The Jews were expelled from England, for example, because the king forced them to give loans to him and then repudiated the loans. So rather than pay them back, he kicked them out of the kingdom. Kind of this is the kind to... of thing that has happened <laughs> over and over and over. But this idea of the Jewish finan- the Jewish money lender turns into the Jewish financier, the Jewish banker, and this idea that somehow they're the ones who are really controlling the economy. Rothschilds, yeah. You know, the Rothschilds <laughs> well, and so on. Yeah.
0: Now, related to that, there is a fact, you know, we can say that, that there's a historic sort of set of conditions that made this particular group, um, you know, invest themselves, so to speak in this place. So this is, this is uh, a place for so that we can, where we, we can exist. And, 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 and in another way it so this is, this is where everything is kind of complicated. There are wheels within wheels. So if like, if you're, if you're a, you know, a minority who is concerned with perhaps, uh, public sentiment turning against you at some point. Um, one of the ways that you can uh, secure your interests is by uh, being necessary or needed. Right? You know, there's there's a sense in which okay, we yeah. need these people because uh, they provide a resource that our community needs in order to thrive. So, yeah. but then that becomes the very reason why they're resented as well, because now you know any. When you think about it this way, uh, you know, if you owe somebody some money, do you like seeing them? <laughs> you know, isn't it a reminder every time you see them? Yeah, you, you don't, don't want to be reminded. <laughs> yeah,
1: But it's interesting, uh, uh, Chris, you say that. I remember Tom Sowell wrote about the way, especially in in the, in the South after slavery, is one, one of the things that a lot of the African-American men were able to do well, better than anyone in the South, is build roads. Right. Largely because that's what they had been doing. Mm -hmm. But there was no one who competed with the kind of road building that they did. So therefore, it wasn't a zero sum game when you needed them to build roads. It didn't leave them in the vulnerable position they had prior to that because now they had something to negotiate. You want our excellent road building. There's no one else that can do it better than us you're going to have to negotiate. So it gave them, uh, it changed that situation. You can very much see that, I think, over and over and over again, of people who have had to thrive in conditions that have been unpleasant, coupled with hatred and stereotype and all the rest, yet still having to excel at something and make that become something that even risks them being targeted for excelling at.
0: I'd like to suggest uh, another explanation. and One is uh, the insistence on retaining a separate identity, Mm. which everything from the dietary laws to the holidays uh, reinforces.
2: Which, by the way, is one of the main reasons why the Bolsheviks went after the Jews. They had an identity that was not part of the common turn. That's it. So now um
0: so they're 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 not willing to assimilate at the level that we want them to there's some biblical stories about this you know when we think about uh you know genesis uh, you know uh in which the neighboring uh peoples want uh to align themselves with with uh abraham and his household and, and or this at this point i think it's uh, we're talking about jacob and the, um, there's just not a willingness to do that because of the covenant, right? Um, and I'm, then of course, I'm thinking a,
2: of Simeon and Levi.
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely part of it too. But, but what you got is, uh, this insistence on separateness, uh, I think c- communicates we're superior. Okay. We don't want to, uh, um, ourselves ritually by our interactions with you um and then there's also the fact that maybe these people are up to something that uh puts us at a disadvantage i think those are two things but i think i think that those are understandable kind of sociological sort of uh sort of conditions yeah uh then it's almost like you have to go searching for a justification for your for why you don't want them around
1: well that's <laughs> where the i mean like you said that di- the, the difference you know and this is with any group that holds something to its own cultural identity right the, the difference bothers those that are bothered by them being different And then couple it with like Girard's work on needing scapegoats at particular moments and times. They become an easy target for that, and especially when you are in a minority position, whatever the minority, you become an easy target. Now, the the way in which current sociology works in the U.S., they like to – they don't – redeem the situation. They just like to flip it, just make the dominant culture now guilty of everything. And all minorities can kind of collectively come together and they're fair game, but they never get out of this kind of cycle of scapegoating and, and identifying difference as something that is justifiable, you know,
2: to, to, to have at, you know, um, I Claudius that um, a book by Robert Graves was turned into a a mini-series. At one point, Herod is in Rome, and he's talking to the empress or someone, I forgot who it was exactly, and he was explaining to her that as a Jew, which, by the way, the Herods weren't really, but Mm -hmm. as a Jew, he needed to marry another Jew. And she looked at him and was shocked at at this closed-mindedness. Right. And his answer was, well, with all of the dietary restrictions and all the stuff we're obligated to do, nobody else would marry us. <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, so, yeah, so there's something there. By the way, you were talking about Jewish names. I suppose I should bring this up at some point. Sunshine is a Jewish name. Huh,
0: right. If
2: you are in Central Europe, Sonnenschein is recognizably a Jewish name. As a matter of fact, there was a film called Sunshine uh, that was set in Hungary, uh, starring, I think it was Ralph Feinz, um, mm. about a Jewish family there. Uh, my grandfather's original name was Chaim Zonenschein. Chaim, like, to life, to life, to Chaim, yeah, right. yeah. life. Um, he grew up in a village that was then part of Austria, is now part of Poland. Um, emigrated to the U.S. probably because of anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and uh, en route, Chaim frequently was uh, moved into English as Harry because of the ch huh at the beginning. I think, <laughs> and so he translated his name from Chaim Zonenschein to Harry Sunshine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was a cantor in a Brooklyn synagogue. <laughs> yeah. Fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so, that's one of the.
0: One of the fun things to do when you go through your through through the genealogy of a family is is when the names change. So in my own case, uh, I'm a Venger, uh, and that became Wingard, and I'm also a Maus, M A U uh, S, that became Moss. And the reason, of course, rather was, than
2: mouse, which is what it translates <laughs> to. Right,
0: right? Right. But the reason, of course, was the first and second world wars. <laughs> mm-hmm. sure. you, know, the, you know, they're here in the United States at this point and uh, they don't want to be uh, identified as Germans. Yeah.
1: yeah, you do. You see it in the you see it in the records within a generation or two. The spellings change and everything else. Yeah. It's, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Now, my, my grandmother's name, by the way, w- was uh, Katie Wasserman. But her mother was a Cohen.
0: Hmm. Oh, okay. See, so, yeah, I had many friends who were Coens
2: when I was in St. Louis as a kid. <laughs> yeah. So okay. Um, I don't want to give the impression, though, that um, my uh, reactions to anti-Semitic comments are generated by my ancestry. Right. Um, the 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 issues are a lot are a lot bigger than that. Um, in part, you know, I, I I told somebody who was spouting off, I, I said, you know, older Christians, he, he said, older Christians have frequently been, you know, bought into the propaganda, the pro-Jewish propaganda. <laughs> um, my response was, older Christians sometimes have parents who liberated concentration camps, mm-hmm. so they know where this rhetoric goes. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
2: I, I also and, think that, you know, there's there's been uh,
0: a kind of pushback against, and and for good reasons, uh, dispensationalist theology and mm-hmm. some of the theological positions that have been associated with that, particularly related to, uh, you know, well, dispensations and who are God's people and the relationship between the, you know, the the Christian faith and Judaism and and a kind of Um, so, you know, when, when I, when I would talk to my Jewish friends about some of this stuff uh, coming out of dispensationalism, they were a little bit freaked out by it, frankly, they, you know, because it's not so much, you know, yeah, they they like us because of the prophecies that they think we are helping to fulfill. Yeah. Uh, and not so much, um, just because this is right and wrong, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. The, the Israelis that understand this stuff always say, we are very grateful for the support of the American evangelicals. We think they're crazy, <laughs> right. but we are very grateful for their support. I mean, right. you know, that, that's, you know sure. that's the reality of the situation. Right. Um, and and what, what I would say on this, you know, I, I started off by saying, you know, criticism of Israel is fair game. And this is one of the things that some of my dispensationalist friends don't like me saying. But, you know, God wasn't shy about criticizing Israel when it acted unjustly. And, yeah. and we shouldn't be either. Right. But, again, a line that I draw, you try to justify what Hamas did on October 7th and we're done. Well, You know, you try to deny what Hamas did on October 7th, we're done. Yeah, and, and But that doesn't mean Israel should be immune to criticism.
0: At the same time, Israel, relatively speaking, and I'm not saying everything about Israel is praiseworthy. I mean, there is a very secular dimension to it. And sure. uh, almost, if you think of Tel Aviv and its sort of sexual revolution kind of community, uh, it's it's as bad as San Francisco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, um, when we think about where would you want to live? Let's say you to, had to choose, you know, to live somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, you could choose Iraq. You could choose Iran. You could choose Saudi Arabia. You could choose Israel. You could choose Jordan. You could choose Syria, Lebanon, you know, Egypt. Where, where would you like to, to go? Uh, if, if the question were asked to me, um, before the, the civil war in Lebanon, I would, probably would have picked that. <laughs> yeah yeah. Right. it's 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 a very difficult place to live now but yeah. uh i'd probably pick israel
1: yeah. yeah well well i think that you know i mean a couple of things go into some of the zeal of different generations being sort of against israel on the one side or maybe escalating it to against the whole race of people if you will the people um the identity group however you want to put it I mean, there is there is, I think, within the fundy circles, uh, a still a kind of working through the same, thinking the conditions are the same as they always were, with the rivalry of Christianity growing out of its competitions with Judaism, right? And so there is this kind of continuance of supersessionist language that can only relate to Jews as Christ killers or those that don't, you know, that that have rejected the true God. So they can't. They can't befriend someone or have a positive relationship because they can only read them through that category, right? Rather than even if it were the case that they were your enemy, being able to love them and and relate to them as image bearers of God like anyone. Um, but then there is also the kind of left-wing interpretation that is spilled over into a lot of the psychology of our young, even in the evangelical church, which sees Israel itself as a colonizer, as a group that is like West all the other Western colonies colonizers that they hate even though they continue to live in them and participate in them but nevertheless they read them as the aggressor and so they don't keep a healthy you know attitude about it um, but, you know, so you have these different strands that, that really aren't able to, one, make a distinction between how you treat a person and a people versus where you can disagree or criticize or challenge or be committed to different visions without having to lose your Christian virtue in relationship to them.
2: Yeah, th- th- this is a point that Wilfred Riley has brought up multiple times. Um, pretty much every country that exists now The people who live in the country and who run the country got that country by right of conquest. And right of conquest is something that was recognized world over through the 19th century to suggest that somehow – well, he he uses the example of the Native Americans. He says to suggest, all right, let's suppose we're going to return the land to the Native Americans – who do we return it to? Which tribe gets it? The tribe that won the last war or the, the tribe that that tribe defeated and, well, and took know, the land from? I mean, you, you know, know this, gl- this kind of, the, the reason why you've got Arabs all across the Middle East is because they conquered it. Well,
0: you, you know, Glenn, that there was never any war between the Native Americans. How could you be so mean to, to imply that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I I have to admit, I'm not a specialist in pre-Columbian America.
1: <laughs> However.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, but you do hear, I, I've had someone sit in this very room um, that was bringing some education material to, well, he's out of school now, my oldest, um, sit there with a straight face and say, yeah, prior to basically Western colonization, uh, most of these places where little, you know, Edens. Yes, and they really are taught this stuff, this Rousseauian idea, mm. you know,
2: re- repackaged. And it, it, it's stunning. Okay, so what do we do with the archaeological sites where they have found <laughs> massacres of hundreds of people yes. who have been scalped? Yes. Um, and in one case, had their, as uh, the article I read, described it, had their feet pounded into a pulp before death and scalped and everything else, total massacre. And it occurred, if I remember right, 600 years before uh, Columbus. Oh, sure. There, there's a reason why the
0: founding documents of our country refer to them as savages. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sixth great-grandmother, um, it was Jenny Wiley, And, uh, her first brood of children were all massacred by, by Native Americans. Uh, and then she was taken into captivity. Uh, and after about, I think it's nine months or so, nine or 10 months, she escaped and then had a second bunch and I'm descended from that bunch. And there's a park in Kentucky named for her. Um, but, uh, you know, when we think about say Europe, uh, the waves of, uh, of conquest and invasion, just say in the British Isles. So you know, at what point am I? Uh, you know, am I Norman? Am I Anglo-Saxon? Mm-hmm. Am I a Pict? Am I? You know, what am I? Am, am I? Uh, uh, you know, a Viking? You know, there, there's there's at a certain point, this the, basically the 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 situation is moot. And you you deal with the situation on the ground. Okay, here we have a bunch of people on the ground. Question is, uh, you know, how do are we? Are we uh, apparently Hamas's uh, objective is uh, genocide uh, or deport or deportation or something? I don't know. I mean, I I have not read any of their uh, political uh documents or anything but
2: actually i have it's genocide and frequently they talk about not just the jews in israel but the jews around the world the irony is the israelis are the ones who are accused of of genocide and hamas is openly advocating it yeah well i think
0: you know um we've kind of gone some some different directions on this i guess it would be good to think a little bit about what do we do i mean how do we how do we uh go forward with this kind of stuff? Do you have any thoughts, Glenn and you know there's there's confronting people on the subject when when it comes up uh, mm-hmm. Is there other stuff that we need to do
2: well i I think we there's another thing that actually needs to be said here, and this that is that we need to also simultaneously recognize that the Jews need Christ mm hmm and you, you will find many people in various Christian circles who oppose attempts to evangelize the Jews. And so we need to recognize that that's a reality as well, that we need to be, uh, just like with any other group, I would say, we need to be respectful. We need to build relationships. Uh, we need to uh, support them uh, when they're under attack. All of these things are things we should be doing, but we also do need to keep in mind that they need Christ just like everybody else does. So there is or there ought to be a respectful, evangelistic approach to them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to be honest with you, I have very few ideas. I mean, on Facebook, which is where these discussions started, I'll be honest with you, I've just unfriended people. You know, if I see something that I can identify as clear anti-Semitism, I'm just not going to deal with them. Um, And and the reason for that is is twofold. First of all, I only have a limited amount of time and energy. Mm -hmm. And given that, I could ignore them, but I don't want to give them a platform. So for me, where I am right now, the right approach is to just say, you know, we're done. As I keep saying in this episode, I've used that phrase three times now, I think— um, but I think it's also important. I I think it's also important to make the case, especially to our fellow Christians, that they need to, if if they're falling into these anti-Semitic traps, they need to rethink this. Uh, they need to recognize, for example, that you know a lot of the people who who are Christians who do this are also people who radic- who adamantly oppose critical theory. And yet by treating the Jews as a monolithic group and Jewish, uh, Jewishness as an uh, immutable identity, as it were, um, or, at, or as an identity that defines who they are, they're falling into the trap that one of the big traps that critical theory falls into and in dividing people up into categories and defining them according to whatever category they fit in. It's no different than talking about whiteness. And yet they will resent the whiteness accusation while falling into traps, attacks on Jewishness. So pointing out these kinds of inconsistencies and making the argument, and and again, I would, I think the appeal to scripture is probably the best approach here. Love your enemies, as Tom pointed out. The things I pointed out from 1 John, there are a lot of other places we can go. Uh, A good look through Romans. Where Paul talks about the Jews being enemies of the Gospel, but at the same time says, "I could wish myself accursed for their sake." Well, that's he, not hatred. And they went usually
1: to the synagogue first before they went right. out and did anything else. and there there was a kind of precedence there early on. Um, and, and so they didn't see it as something that wasn't significant, but it was very important. Sometimes that was the best place to get a hearing. Um, sometimes it was the worst place. They still went.
0: <laughs> right. I, I guess I, th- approach I would like to, 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 uh, uh, propose is to challenge, uh, our interlocutors, people that w- who are, uh, promoting, uh, you know, anti-Semitism or, uh, are. are uh, guilty of it uh, to to to, to uh, grow, I guess what when, when I mean by that is um, there's a kind of uh, beauty to uh, a magnanimous person, um, a person who can even be aware of maybe uh, the shortcomings of somebody that they're interacting with <clears throat> but, is big enough to, um, deal with them in the, f- in the fairest way possible, uh, to give them the benefit of the doubt almost to a fault, if you get my, my meaning. Um, so let, let me, let me tell you a little story about a, a, a Jewish businessman who actually cheated me. <laughs> so I, I, you know, he, his name was Abram and, uh, he was acidic an and he was, uh, uh very, uh, kind of, uh, sad in certain respects, but obviously, uh, unprincipled in others. Uh, and oddly, uh, seemed to want to be my friend, even mm-hmm. though, uh, later on he shafted me for $5,000. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> Today, um, uh, you know, kind of in an odd way, I was aware of certain things that have transpired after the business deal that I was involved with him with. He was wanted by the authorities for burning down apartment buildings that I had sold him <laughs> for the <laughs> insurance money.
2: A friend of mine refers to that as Jewish lightning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but anyways, I remember um, walking by his car one time. And he had, uh, I think it was a a Volkswagen, you know, there was a, there was an attempt that Volkswagen made to make a high end kind of competitor to say a Mercedes or an Audi or something like that. And it had been keyed all the way down the side. And this guy was coming from coming up, uh, to Connecticut from Brooklyn to, to, to work with us on this business deal. And, um, I thought to myself when I saw that, I didn't necessarily think Oh, he's uh, been the object of um, you know hatred because he's Jewish what I thought was this guy is a slime ball <laughs> and somebody's probably probably uh, angry at him because of a business transaction <laughs> or something <laughs> like that um, but in the process I got the I had a, I almost felt bad for the guy uh, in a strange sort of way just because of how lost he was Um and kind of pitiful he was in certain respects. Uh, my 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 understanding is that he's in jail right now. <laughs> no. But um, the the whole process as it was unfolding, um, I was angry at him, but not at Jews. If you get my drift. In other words, I didn't like say, okay, this this jerk is a representative of his people, and therefore everybody. Now, obviously, I'm. Uh, you know, a person who have who's had a lot of uh, Jewish friends over the years. So I, you know, I I, I would be impossible for me to make that of uh, that inference because I've had so many other mm-hmm. relationships. But at the same time, I could see why maybe a person who never had any interactions with Jews. And I think you know, when you think about where are Jews? Well, Jews generally are in large metropolitan areas. I mean, if you're in New York, you know, New Jersey. I was in a in a particular section of St. Louis that was uh, had a very large Jewish population. Um, they're in major metropolitan areas, um, so a lot of people who don't live in those communities are not going to have uh, you know regular contact with Jewish people. Now, just because you have regular contact with Jewish people doesn't mean you're going to like them, but uh, you know, but at least you got some basis for you know, making, uh, judgments or, or that is more than a stereotype or more than a rumor or more than an urban legend or more than a conspiracy theory, if you get my drift. But, but we, we, we need to encourage people to kind of get over this kind of stuff and, and interact with real people.
1: Well, I think right. that's – I mean that's – I mean the, the hard thing for all human beings in their fallenness is, is to make friendships. I mean it just is because there's all the complications of our own fallenness and self-interest that go in good and bad directions. Um, but then, when we try to get a hold of those in Christ and be transformed, when we run into other people who haven't had that transformation, it's easy to begin to dislike and move towards hatred or frustration, and then lash out more widely. Um, because people, they've got they've got fallenness running through their veins, and so it's it's easy to start to to say, "Oh, okay," because some people aren't trying to be transformed by the renewing of their mind in Christ therefore they're going to act like sinners therefore that's justification for me to hate them and not befriend them i mean that's where we we can often end up and it's just it's it's fundamentally unchristian
2: yeah i think one of the things that i object to is when i get a statement about the jews because what you're doing is once again you're taking a whole lot of individuals, some of whom are, frankly, pretty upright people in 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 terms of a sort of a, a secular uh, vision of who they are, and others who are real slime balls. But you're you're acting as if they're all the same. And so you know, yeah, you had a bad experience with a Jewish businessman. Okay, that happens. Yeah, bad experiences with Christian businessmen, with, you know, any <laughs> the, the kind big, of businessman, It happens. The, but somehow we feel that it's okay, unlike any other group, we feel like it's okay to single out the Jews as being the problem. We like don't do gets, that with any other group. But th-
0: this brings me back to my point in terms of getting big about these kinds of things. So getting to know people, kind of getting out there. So... Uh, I represented the biggest um, slum lord in uh, the area that I was uh, located in. I listed, I think, I think, thirteen of his properties or something like that. And dealing with that guy, he was not Jewish. He was <laughs> uh, as slimy as the other guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I would never have been even the thought never would have occurred to me. He was white. Um, and it would, never would have occurred to me, obviously, because I'm white, but it never would have occurred to me that, ah, all white people are like this guy, you know. But there's a tendency because I think of these other factors for people to make generalizations uh, uh, about people that they really don't have much personal experience with.
2: Yeah, the other uh, one of the other things I've run into is the idea that you know the we we should view the Jews as evil because they rejected Jesus or they reject Jesus. You know uh, somebody quoted me the verse where Jesus says to the Pharisees, um, "You you are children of the devil." Okay, as if again that applies to all of them. Okay, so if we're going to use the criterion that they reject. Christ and therefore we're justified in hating hating them. What do we do with Hindus? What do we do with Buddhists? What do we do with pagans? What do we do with Shintoists? What do we do with Muslims? Are we supposed to hate all of these groups because they don't accept Christ? I think some
1: of those people do. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think they. That sometimes you'll find, and I have found it. You'll they hate anyone who isn't in their little tiny interpretive community of Christianity. Everyone right. else. Oh, there can't be any Christians if they are are Catholic. There cannot be any Orthodox. Oh, there cannot be anyone who's a Baptist.
0: That's a, you know, there's this. Well, that, that that's what I'm getting at, Tom. It's sort of getting yeah. bigger about this kind of stuff, and yeah. I wonder just how much of this is due to just insularity. Yeah. And that kind of thing. So if you've had some kind of cosmopolitan, uh, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, sort of ethos that you've lived in at one point in your life where you're just dealing all the time with all kinds of people from all over the world. Um, you know, you get to the place where, uh, you, you can identify pretty quick, uh, people that you can uh, work with and, and enjoy, depend no matter where they're coming from, and then yeah. you can also identify pretty quick people you don't want to deal with, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 right. <laughs> no matter where they're coming from. <laughs> so, yeah. Here's you, you name the ethnic point. group, and I've had experiences with both sides.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, as an interesting observation, the idea of tolerance, uh, religious tolerance. Uh, It was originally a Christian idea, frankly, you know, from the church fathers, but it got largely forgotten uh, because, frankly, Europe was pretty monolithically uh, Catholic Christian. You do have anti-Semitism through the Middle Ages. When you get to the Reformation, though, and you get multiple flavors of Christianity around Europe, the place where toleration of different religions actually extending to Judaism uh, it happened primar- initially primarily in commercial regions like the Netherlands. Right. Yeah. And it's it's that the fact that it is a commercial area, that there, that there are people who are interacting, they're trading with people who are different and things like that, that is the environment in which religious toleration came up, I suspect in part because it was good for business.
0: Well, sure. I mean, there's a sense in which in a course of any given trade, uh, basically, uh, both parties should th- feel like they came out ahead, and mm-hmm. you know, in what you're engaged in trading in are are usually goods that transfer from group to group without, uh, you know, necessarily uh, a bunch of baggage that comes along with it. You know, even if you're buying something that maybe is, is very much an expression of a particular ethnic group or so- social groups background and when we think about you know the netherlands for example where you had what you just described um you you, you know both the calvinists and the jews were commercial people yeah. you know they had a commercial outlook um and wherever you have that kind of thing happen there's some interesting alliances and kind of uh, things that occur
2: historically yeah. the calvinists were philo-semites yeah. Yeah. When you look at the history of Calvinism, they are probably the Christian group that has historically been most friendly to the Jews mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know that that that's just simply you know observational fact. Um and I can give you multiple examples of that, um even particularly in France, which was where I did my research. Um, by the way, uh, just this, this is a bit of a tangent, but the idea that both sides want to feel like they have to come out ahead in trade. My favorite example of that has to do with trade with the Native Americans in the colonies. So the Europeans really wanted beaver pelts because felt hats were the big thing. And beaver, for a variety of reasons, they've got barbs on the hair and things like that. They make a very strong felt. And in particular, they liked getting beaver skins, beaver pelts that had been turned into uh, winter robes by the Native Americans. Because what the Native Americans would do is they'd they'd put bear grease on their skin and they'd wear it fur-side in. So the bear grease got worked into the fur, which made it waterproof, which made much better hats. So what would happen is the Europeans would trade iron knives, hatchets, pots, things like that to the Native Americans for these beaver robes. We actually have records of this. The Europeans were saying, we're giving them all this cheap junk and we're getting these really valuable (laughs) furs in exchange. We're cheating them blind. (laughs) <laughs> the Native Americans said, we're getting all these incredibly useful tools that are far better than what we produce. And all we're doing is giving them used clothing. <laughs> <laughs> Both sides thought they were robbing the other blind. Right? Right, right. <laughs> so,
0: <clears throat> yeah, well, that's actually one of the things that characterizes a trade. I mean, w- mm-hmm. what you give away is always less valuable to you than what you th- what you're getting in exchange. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah but uh but i I guess free markets work right and but i guess this this is the thing i i guess the thing i would encourage people who maybe are dealing with these feelings uh is get out more just get out more um put yourself now doesn't mean you have to adopt i think maybe sometimes people are afraid that if they get out more they're going to pick up some ideas that maybe they don't know what to do with um, if you live in a place like Cambridge, sure. I mean, you're going to have, you're just going to be in a place where there's just all kinds of stuff swirling around you. Uh, every idea that you can possibly imagine. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what that should do is drive you back to your own resources, meaning yeah. scripture and, you know, good theology and stuff like that, to develop your mind and to develop your convictions in such a way that you can actually sit comfortably in a room full of highly educated people you disagree with. Yeah. And not feel one, you know, sort of uh, in- inkling
2: of yeah. insecurity. Yeah. 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 So <clears throat> I think we did an episode actually once on the idea of magnanimity, mm-hmm. what yeah. it means to be magnanimous. Um, and I think, I think that that's a, a really good virtue to be thinking of in this context. So yeah, I hadn't thought of it myself. Glad you brought it up, Chris. Well, I'm glad it was received well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, we should probably bring this to a, to an end. Um, anything you want to make certain, uh, get said before we wrap it up, Glenn? Um,
2: yeah, I'll, I'll start with, uh, you know, I'll finish with what I started with. It's, okay as far as i'm concerned to criticize israel to criticize apac adl other kinds of organizations of that th- that sort that's fair game but when you level accusations against the jews as a group treating them as as this monolithic thing that's a source of evil that's where we got real problems so and it doesn't even do justice i would suggest you check your scriptures on that
0: Yeah, it doesn't even do just all the divisions justice to all the divisions in Judaism.
2: Right, (laughs) whenever you argue with themselves all the time.
0: That's right. 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 Anything you want to say, uh, Tom? As we wrap up,
1: I I think coupled with it, it's the same. It's you know, there's similar issues at heart with any type of racism, Um, and I think that we don't have to move to critical theory to address these from our own rich resources, beginning with enemy love, not saying other races are an enemy, but when we feel as though sometimes others who don't embrace our faith or have different ideologies and we lump them into a group and then we turn against them, we start to run down this trail of, of creating that which is a competitor to the truth when we should be able to relax in the truth of the gospel because there is no competitor. And it's from that rich set of resources that we can love even when we're not, it's not received back. And we can address those issues where hatred did swell up, even within our own ranks, and how we're going to try to do it differently from that transcendent source rather than just returning, you know, hatred
0: for hatred. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, I don't have anything more to say, uh, except <laughs> this. You've gotten to the end of the episode, and uh, now you get to hear me talk about Patreon. So Patreon is an important part of the Theology Podcast. We've got a number of supporters who, on a monthly basis, uh, are giving to the to, to the show to cover our expenses. And there are some benefits to being a Patreon. One of those is that you get to see the episodes before they're available to anybody else. Uh, so if you're interested in that, uh, we also... Uh, you know, talk about what we're doing with our patrons every once in a while to kind of fill them in on our research and our our writing and so forth. And uh, in those uh, times, we can uh, also interact with folks through the Patreon account. Um, If you'd like to be one of those folks, uh, you can just go to the link in the show notes, uh, follow it to to our Patreon page and uh, decide uh, at uh, what level you'd like to be part of things. Anyway, that's that. And we're also getting ready for our big trip to the UK at the end of May. We're going to be in Oxford. Uh, We're getting emails from folks about the trip, and people in uh, the United Kingdom are getting in touch with us, and and we're hoping to connect with them when we're there. And uh, we're looking forward to a great time. Uh, We're going to be raising some additional funds for the, the trip, mainly to cover some of the expenses in the production of the documentary and the shows that we're going to be conducting over there. Uh, Our expenses in terms of the flight and uh, where we'll be staying and even rental car and all that kind of stuff, that's all taken care of already. But there are these other expenses that we'd love to have some help with. And if the Indiegogo page is up by the time this show posts, there'll be a link in the show notes for that. Anyway, that's it for now. All right. Well, thanks a lot, folks. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: The theology Podcast is the ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. To learn more about the church, you can visit Trinity Reformed Kirk.com. Trinity Reformed K I R K.com.